Uh, we are still in our series, Emmanuel. So if you don't mind, uh, open with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. Um, Philippians is going to be after Ephesians. Philippians. If you're there, you can say, I am there and we go. Uh, that's, the on, this is the, that's the only side that responded. If you're there, you say, I am there. All right. Uh, sounds like we're almost getting there. Good. The book of Philippians. We'll be reading chapter, uh, portion of chapter 2. Like I said, we are still continuing our series that we have called Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, today we'll be looking at the incarnation of humility, like how we can learn from Christ to be humble, how Christ set the best example of humility. My question is, uh, it's not just for you, it's even for me. This question, normally, you know, when you're preaching, you have a question, you think, oh, people can relate to this. But this is, this is my question as well. Is it worth it to be a humble person? Is it worth it? Just eat on that for a minute. Is it worth it to be a humble person? Uh, in my village where I grew up, we had a rich man, very rich. Uh, he was an appointee of the colonialists. So when colonizers came to Africa, they would look for a well-to-do family, and they would choose one out of that family, take them for education, and then they bring them back after their education to become the, uh, to become the fellow African colonizers of sorts. And so they would, colonizers would speak through these ones to administer their uh, programs in the community. So we had one man. Those people are very respected because if whatever they wanted, colonizers would give it to them. Lots and lots of land. Thousands and thousands of acres of land. Most of them still possess that property. So this man was one of those people. And uh, he came from my area. He was rich. And so one day he was coming from his farm, which is a big farm, and heading his, to his home. And on his way, he was, the way to his house went through uh, this poor people's compound. So as he's going home, he goes through the poor people's compound and always he's mocking at them and they are the servants that work in his farms. If they want, he wants them to pull the weeds and do run the errand. So one day he's going home and he finds these squatters or servants, poor people, plucking feathers, wings of grasshoppers. Because grasshoppers in Uganda, it's a delicacy. We eat grasshoppers. Hey, I will not tell you the experience. But if you've been there, you know, hey, they sell them. They actually import them, export them even. So we, these people are eating grasshoppers and they the rich man could not comprehend how a human being can eat grasshoppers. So he, say, he looked at them and he mocked and he continued to his home. 
And then before he reached home, he noticed a, an army of ants. You know, these red, fiery big ants, they've attacked us one time in Uganda. <laughs> Is Megan here? Megan was in a house when we were attacked by ants. They're big and they're fiery. And so uh, he saw an army of ants. They are very disciplined. They follow each other in a straight line. And so he noticed they are heading into his farm. And of course, we know the dangers of these big ants. They can kill an entire pen of cattle in, uh, in a short time. So he, he looked at them. He, couldn't, he didn't know what to do. So he asked, he got an idea. He said, what, what, what do I do with these ants? Oh, wait. Those poor people can help me with the problem. So he goes back to these insect grasshopper-eating neighbors, and, he's, and he, he stood in their compound and he said, he said, you poor people seem to eat everything. I have an offer for you. I have a great delicate meal. I have a great meal for you. Uh, and he said, I have an army of ants heading into my farm. Could you eat them for me? As well. Yeah, that's how it feels. That we are built and we find ourselves in a position where we demean other people that live around us. He definitely knew people don't eat ants in that community. He knew nobody would eat these red ants. But you know, let me go back and demean them. So you and I may say that this kind of arrogance can never be tolerated in a first world country like America. And you may say, oh, I don't think I can say such things to people. But if you look closely, you see how we treat one another. It may be evident as you look really closely that we are not much different from this African arrogant rich man. Often without noticing, we find ourselves sizing up people in terms of what they can do for us. What can, I, what can you do for me? How they can further our agenda, feed our ego, how they can satisfy our needs and supply us with strategic advantage. Is it worth it to be a humble pastor? St. Augustine said that it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes man an angel. It is humility. Is humility an elusive pursuit among us people? Where should one turn for a perfect human example of humility. What does the Bible say about humility, as we are going to see? So one of the key passages that can help us to answer these questions is found in Philippians chapter 2. I'll begin from verse 1, and then I will we'll go. I'll read two, 2, 3, 4, and then I can stop, and then we can continue. Christ's example of humility. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is where we are going to be looking at today. Verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. As I shared last week, uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, God became visible and tangible in human form. And this is why we named this series, Emmanuel, God with us. It is here that we must interrogate what it means Christ to be born as man, what it means for God to become human, and how that relates to our lives today. Now, we are reading from Philippians. I don't know if some of you understand what is happening. So the background a little bit, and then I can continue, is that the church at Philippi was planted by Paul and his companions on his second missionary journey. If you read the book of Acts, chapter 16, you remember Paul is wrestling where they can go next. And the Spirit keeps uh, stopping him from going to different places. And then he, in the dream, he gets a vision of a man calling him to come to Macedonia and help them. Apparently, that man turned out to be a woman when they arrived there because there was a lady, a tradeswoman. Her name was Lydia. She was a, a, a merchant. And so, as it was Paul's custom, when they arrived, they went to the synagogue. But I think there was no people. Uh, there was not a big Jewish number to meet in synagogues. So what happens, they go to a certain river where they thought people could meet. Probably the quorum for a synagogue was not a fool. So they found some women. And uh, Paul started sharing. That is Acts 16. If you're interested in the story, you can go and read it. So they share the story, and uh, these women accept Jesus, Lydia and her household, and people were baptized. And uh, they keep sharing there. She asked them, can you come to my house? They went to her house. And one day on their way to, uh, to the prayer meeting, they meet this slave girl who keeps calling Paul and his companions men and the servants of God. And she was saying the right thing, but the voice behind her was a demonic voice. And so Paul, getting agitated or angry about with the demon, casts it out, and the demon leaves the woman, this girl, the slave girl, and what happens? She was the source of livelihood for her masters. So the master becomes angry because she was a seer or a demon-possessed seer of some sorts. So the master becomes angry, and then he collaborates with the people in the community, and then they team up against Paul and the team, and before they knew it, they were thrown in jail. And you know, there's a story of the jailer when they were in jail, and the story goes on, oh my goodness. <laughs> so it's a wonderful experience in Philippi. So Paul loves this church because it reminds him of the experiences they had. The Holy Spirit comes in the middle of the night, the angels, the gates are opened, 
and the jailer thinks they have escaped, so he wants to kill himself. Paul says, no, don't kill yourself, we're here. And the man comes on his knees, he says, what can I do to be saved? Paul says, well, accept Jesus. Before you know it, the man is baptized, the church is growing in Philippi. So that's what the Spirit does. The church is growing in Philippi. So this was the first church established on the European continent. Today, uh, today is modern northern Greece. So after this church has been planted, Paul leaves, and several years later, he's arrested, he's in Rome. And uh, the church, somehow Paul stayed in touch with them. They send a gift, some clothing and some money. And when you plant a church and they remember you, man, it's the best thing. When you help somebody and they remember, it's the best thing. As a preacher, I'll tell you, man, pastoral work is the most lonely occupation. It's not part of my message, but I'm going to share with you. It's the most lonely space. Every day you pour into people. Every day. But the question is, who pours into you? So for Paul to be in jail and get an encouragement from a young church, it was everything. So even when you look at how he writes to them, my goodness, he doesn't even begin with titles. He's, the, the text has so many joy words, like he's feeling a lot of joy, and he puts it in a text. So as they came in, they sent one of their uh, believers, uh, Epaphroditus, who brought some clothes and money. And in response, Paul saw an opportunity to thank the church and update them concerning his situation. And as it was his custom, you know, Paul, if you were a Pauline uh, disciple, like my brother Christopher, you know that Paul will not write a letter and not leave some Christian admonition. He will always challenge you. So he writes to them and he gives them practical Christian admonition. So what is going on at this church? As any church with real people, there is always going to be what? Now tell me, huh? Issues like what? You remember the last series we just finished, Conflicted? <laughs> problems. There's always going to be relational problems. If you read chapter 4 of this book, uh, verse 2 and 3, you see that there were two women. I think Epaphroditus brought, uh, they, he's been talking with Paul in in prison, and he's telling him the news about the church and the growth. So Epaphroditus tells Paul about what is happening. There are two women, Judea and Syntyche. Syntyche, Syntyche. They had a very a significant misunderstanding, and Paul would not take this a small matter. So he addresses it. And I like how he addresses it. So he's very wise. He's watching his words. He's very careful. Because he knows it is a young church, and he has to be careful. So instead of bringing in a lot of theology and pouring a lot of, you know, Pauline, Pharisee-educated words, look at what he says them, he, he, what he tells them. He tells them, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, Paul is saying, follow Jesus' humble example. Just follow Jesus. The rest will be okay. Follow Jesus. And so he lays down how they can follow Jesus. Like I told you last week, that when the Son of God became a human being, he became the perfect teacher, he became the perfect example, and he became the perfect sacrifice. We have no other teacher greater than Jesus that we can learn from. We have no other greater example that we can learn from apart from the Son of the living God. We have no other greater sacrifice apart from the sacrifice already made by Jesus Christ. So his willingness to give up his rights to obey God and serve people made him the perfect embodiment of humility. And this is what Paul is saying to the church today. So we shall look at three ways uh, Jesus embodied humility so that we can follow his example. Number one, consider your position. And I think this is what Paul is telling them. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. If you have the message, sometimes these words can be a little bit all over the place. So I go to the message. It's a little bit of a paraphrase. This is what Eugene says. He says, don't push your way to the front. This is the Bible I'm reading. Don't switch talk your way to the top. Does that make more sense a little bit? <laughs> and then he says, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Oh, that makes more sense to me. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Oh, that is deep. Not that ESV is not deep. It is extra sanctified version. But <laughs> uh, the message brings up uh, the English that I can understand. So, opens, so Paul opens up the first section of this chapter, like I read, by stressing the need for spiritual unity. Yeah, he's asking the church at Philippi to love one another and become one in spirit and in purpose. Then he moves on like we just read, to warn the church against selfish ambition, vain conceit, and cause them to act in humility. Now, for the people in Philippi, uh, in this context of a Philippian Roman context, the term humility was viewed with contempt. Even today, we get confused about really what is humility. Because it's hard to say that I am humble. It's really hard. So these people were struggling. At least for us, we know that certain jobs are not reserved for, at least, at least that's what I would think, we put dignity to work. And so in this time of Paul, uh, saying that you're a humble person, humility meant 
it carried the image and mentality of a slave. Uh, to be humble. So when he tells the church to be humble, he tells the people to be humble, it is, it is difficult. It was viewed with contempt because it implied lowliness, weakness, lack of freedom, servility, and subjection. So it's going to be hard for the people to grasp it. And he knows it. The question is, how could this be adopted in a church? Paul has a response. So he says, this is how you can do it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. That's it. Don't focus on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in our context, in our culture here, that emphasizes competitiveness, rewards competitiveness, where we reward climbing, where we reward uh, self-made millionaires as the best of the cream, it is hard to emphasize putting others first. It is going to be hard to sell it, even in our context. Don't think that Paul is struggling in his time. Even in our time, it is hard to sell putting others' interest first, first to the church. We are all about me first. For those of you who are raising children, you know me. I don't know who teaches them about me. Me. We have a life group. And so I see these two little. My daughter is not even two years yet. And my brother Greg has a daughter, and she's not even a year and a half yet, right? But they fight over a chair. You watch them and you say, who taught these how to climb on top of the other? Who told these that this is yours? And she, Talia, my, said you help me, 19 months? 19 months. Our 19 month old, she, she, she tells you, me, me, this is daddy. And she touches it. You touch it, no, 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 no. This, who teaches these kids how to own certain things? And that's what happens. Me first. It's the way of life. Me first. Me first in the academics. I was talking with a friend of mine who's a professor. We are coming to the end of a school year, and so students go and do whatever students do. Sometimes they slumber, they forget about doing their assignments. And then on the last minute, when the professor says, we have an exam, here it is, and then you don't pass as you expected. And then you start texting, writing to the professor, you must give me my grade. Well, I told you ahead of time to study. You did not study. Now you want your grade. You want an A from a C minus to an A. How's that going to work? <laughs> me first. Me. I wanted my sleep and I slept. But when it comes to the time of harvest, me first. Me fast in marriage. Me fast. 
talk to couples. <laughs> the fight, <laughs> the biggest fight I have with my wife is a blanket. I want to be warm. <laughs> and a thermostat. She wants it at 66. Who lives in 66 in the winter? One at 70. Come on, brothers. One at 70. 66. We left 60s in the summer. Wait. Me first. And so sometimes I, I see she's going to bed and she knows it's a 60 whatever. Because it's me. I want it. It's me. Me first on the highway. On the highway. Man. Man. I do not like Michigan driving. <laughs> Especially 94. I. I. I wonder what is going on inside people. The ramps are short, for Christ's sake. Because there was no big provision or whatever, they, they are short. So you see me coming, I have an old car that has so many lights, you remember? Help a brother to get on the highway. Help a brother. But somebody's not even, they don't care. Because it's me first. I want to get to my destination, really. Hitting the brakes a little bit, one second for me, the margin. Brothers and sisters, humility. Is it worth it to be a humble person? It doesn't have to be a church. It doesn't have to be a church. It could be in your home. Be on the highway, in your relationships. Me fast. That's why relationships become complicated. Because we make things complicated. Me fast. Me fast. We are told that competition, comparison, and climbing are the rules of the game. And so we bulldoze. We bulldoze through others with our selfish ambitions. And then we suck every life left in them until they drop dead. That's not our position in Christ. Our position in Christ is to put others' interests first. Number two, in following Jesus' example, we must consider your mindset. In 2.5, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because we are united with Christ, what is true in Christ is true to us. It's true of us. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. 
and because Christ is the embodiment of humility, and because his righteousness is gifted to the believer, we are considered humble and can grow. We have the opportunity to grow into humility because Jesus won humility for us. So have his mind. How do we grow in humility? We must give attention to thinking about what Jesus did, but also how he did it. No, think about those things. How did he do things? And how did he do? The hearts, the motivations, and actions of Jesus and his mindset are very instructive uh, to us in how we pursue humility. So when you look at Jesus and realize who he is and what he has done, I truly believe that you, can you cannot help but be humbled. What he did and how he did it. Think about the washing of the apostles' feet. His disciples in John 13, Jesus knew that he was going back to heaven in his glory. He didn't need to wash the feet of his disciples. They've come in from outside. It is a meal they are supposed to have. They are reclining on the table. Somebody should have figured out that they need to wash their feet before they got on the table, but they forgot because they are hungry and they're used to the rabbi. So they are chilling and waiting for food. Probably, I don't even know, they think they washed their hands. If they didn't wash their feet, how could they even remember? Pray to wash their hands. They're reclining. The food is ready, so they are ready to eat. Jesus says, really? You fast? That's how life is going to be? You want your food? You want to eat it? You, you don't think about, slow down and think about, no, 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 this is. So he saw an opportunity. He left his position. He left his position. Changed his clothing, laid it on the ground, got a towel, wrapped it around his waist, the way servants did. Got water, poured in a basin, and he started, you know, they are, when they are reclining, they are like this. They are not eating like we eat. So they are reclining and their feet are behind, so they are chilling here on a pillow, and then food is in front of them because it was a raised platform. And so he walks behind them, probably without even noticing, they thought he was just doing some water errands or anything, and they feel the coldness of water on their feet without even looking. Sometimes we do things because we want people to look at us, but he's like, I'll do it whether you look at me or not. That is my position. That is who Jesus, that is mine. And so have the mind of Jesus to serve one another, to help one another, to wash each other's feet. He did not lose his, he did not lose his position by washing his disciples' feet. No, he still is the son of the living God. He still. If God in the flesh is willing to serve how about us, his servants? Have the mind of Christ. Number three, 
as I finish, consider your example. That's going to be verse 6, verse 8. I'll read 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Who, now he's explaining who Jesus really is and his mind and his status. Who, though he was in the form of God. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, we know that sin originated from the Garden of Eden. And the problem there is that Adam and Eve wanted to seize an opportunity to be like God. Now, follow me here. But Jesus, the Son of the living God, did not insist on remaining equal with God. Not even remaining equal. He was prepared to give it all up and become a servant. One who had every nature of God went to the opposite extreme and took the very nature of a servant. And this is humiliation. So in accepting this humiliation, Christ held nothing back. He emptied himself, or as NIV says, he made himself nothing. This does not mean that Jesus stripped himself of his divine attributes, but he completely abandoned all the rights and privileges to which he was entitled so he can serve and experience what it means to be human. If you look at his birth, yesterday we were, my family and I were at Nativity at Troy. Do they have a nativities coming up? Are they done? Man, a great experience. You see that Christ's humility does not begin when he dies on the cross, when he's hanging on the cross. No. It begins from the way he was born. Born. Born in a manger. And then the way he was raised by these poor, this poor family. From his birth in the manger to the climax of his ministry on the cross. The one who was limitless accepted the limitations of human beings. And was willing to accept the worst kind of death. Accepted. How do you come from limitless to limited? Because of how much you love mankind. And if you remember, the death on the cross to the Jews, it implied that the victim was excommunicated and outside the covenant of God's people. So by dying on the cross, Jesus is excommunicated from his own people. Uh, this was a very despised death and was very inconceivable 
for one who claims to be God. Like, how do you claim to be God and you are excommunicated from your own people? A few other thoughts down here that I would like you to hear. As humans, we have, a, we have no choice about whether we, we can die or not. We will die. We all will die at some point. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He didn't need to die. No. But he died anyway. He was different. Became obedient to death. The sinless son of God. He had no need to die. But he chose to accept death on our behalf. To free us from the power of sin and death. Now I know that obviously we cannot imitate Christ in his divine glory. But we can imitate his remarkable behavior. His remarkable behavior. Imitate him. Because I started with insects. I'll finish with insects. And then I'll be, I'll be out of here. Uh, you all know that uh, a female spider, a female spider is always alone for very weird reasons. It is alone because whoever comes her way, she eats them. She eats them. She does not have a digestive system. So she goes in the body of whoever comes in her trap because she lays in the corner and waits and lays the trap. So whoever comes in, let's say a fly comes in and thinks, oh, he's trapped. What she does, she injects these little juices from her, the spider, into the belly of the fly. And so the juices, which are acidic, breaks down. Breaks down the intestines of the fly so the spider can swallow warm juice out of the prey. And so when other flies see a fly hanging in the net, they think it's a living fly. So they fly there, but they don't realize that it's a corpse. It has no life in it. And this is what happens when we put ourselves ahead of everybody. I want you to know that the world is full of people that are completely hollow, empty, because of what others have done to them. Because of our tendency, selfish ambitions, conceit, arrogance, we want to be ahead of everybody. And so we, we, we don't care whether they, we lay in wait how can I advance my agenda through you, through her? How can she make my way? How, uh, how can I climb the ladder? So the people who are, if you've ever worked with someone who's driven, overdriven, they plow through everybody. 
only to look back after six months and realize that the whole team has been mutilated. They're laying on the ground, and then when they have achieved their goal, they come back to the team, and now they have a retreat to rebuild the team. What are you rebuilding? It's gone. It's empty, hollow caskets of people moving around just trying to survive on a paycheck to paycheck. We cannot be a female spider. She's so lonely, so lonely, laying in wait for somebody to inject the enzymes, the acid, and so she can swallow everything inside of them. We have a better position, children of God. And that is the position of humility. Putting others' interests first. Can we do that as we head home this morning? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. There is no way we would be talking these things if you did not set a perfect example for us. Without you, we have no example of humility. You have given us a clear position, my God. Clear position. Your position is put others first. Put others first. It is hard, but with you, we lean on to you to be humble because you made it possible. You walked the life of mankind and remained humble. Even to the humility of being on the cross. Father, set your example every day before our eyes. When we rise up in the morning, that we ask ourselves this question, who can I help today? Who can I serve today? And how can I serve them to see that I walk and I've accepted Jesus. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. We give you praise and honor. In Jesus' name we pray.